0: Hi there, I'm Dan Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Here I have conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey, and I started this podcast a couple years ago because I love talking with and learning from other researchers. A couple months ago, one of you reached out and suggested that I talk with Professor John Sturman at MIT. So I got in touch with him, and I was very pleased that he was open to talking on the show. He didn't even mind my usual two-hour format, which I appreciated. Sometimes the uh, the two-hour format is a bit too much for busy people's schedules, which I totally understand, of course, obviously. From his website, I'm going to read you a little bit here. Professor Sturman's research is focused on decision-making in complex systems, including corporate strategy, energy policy, public health, environmental sustainability, and climate change. In collaboration with some other researchers, Professor Sturman has developed a web-based climate change solution simulator, which is freely available. It's a policy simulation model that you can access and try out in a simple web-based format. The idea is that policymakers, students, educators, businesses, the media, and anyone really can use these tools to explore different climate change solutions to see... How they might affect the physical planet as well as economic variables it's a transparent model and that you can see and adjust all of the assumptions that have been built into it and it's very quick and easy to use you can try it out yourself at climateinteractive.org look under the tools link for the Roads simulator spelled e-n r-o-a-d-s in this conversation, Professor Sturman walked me through some of the basics of dynamical systems modeling, which is his broad mathematical field, focusing on a specific example first of uh, global pandemic modeling that he's been working on lately. We then transitioned into talking about the En-ROADS Climate Solutions Simulator, and he walked me through that, showed me how to use it, and uh, we came up with a plan for how to save the planet, to be blunt. It's, uh, well, that's one way to look at it using that web-based tool, which I'll share that plan that we came up with on Twitter as a link here and there. And I might put it in the description, too, if I remember. A few titles here for just a little tiny touch of formality. John Sturman is the J.W. Forrester Professor of Management and a professor in Systems Dynamics and Engineering at MIT. He's also the director of the MIT Systems Dynamics Group and the MIT Sloan Sustainability Initiative. Thank you again to Professor Sturman for taking some time out to talk with me and for walking me through the en simulator. It was a really excellent conversation. I really enjoyed it. And uh, after you and I talked, after I talked with Professor Sturman, I showed Inroads to my then eight-year-old son, and uh, he came up with his own plan to save the world. And he found it, like, really exciting. He got really engaged with it, and that was that was awesome. That was a lot of fun. uh, In this intro, I've thrown the phrase, save the world, around a lot. And maybe it's important to qualify that, uh, of course, reality is much more complicated than a set of differential equations. And uh, that's coming from somebody who really loves mathematical models. There's no quick and easy fix for the climate crisis, but a good mathematical model with clear assumptions and a friendly, easy-to-use interface is a really excellent start. So let's just go ahead and get into part two of this conversation with Professor John Sturman. Here we go.
1: So today, uh, well, I'm basically uh, in uh, self-imposed COVID-19 isolation with my wife here in Lexington. we have a routine that we've evolved. So I get up today at about 5 a.m., work out for an hour on, on a, a bike trainer I have uh, down in my basement, and then do some weights and pushups and sit-ups. And then I, I, I have breakfast, we have breakfast together, and then I get to work. Uh, and this, this routine has been really important during this period of isolation. Uh, and in fact, I mean, I'm normally a bicycle commuter, mm. so MIT is about 12 miles from here. I've been riding my whole career. It's the very best way to, to commute other than cross-country skiing, which I have done once <laughs> during a huge blizzard. Uh, but yeah, it, it's it's bicycling is the best way to do it. And since I'm not going to the office now, uh, being able to, to work out and get that exercise every day is really, really important. Yeah. So uh, since I got to work here, I've been working on a blog post on climate issues, particularly around why planting a trillion trees, although it might be a good idea to plant a lot of trees, does not solve the climate crisis mm. um, uh, using our interactive climate policy simulation En-ROADS. So just about done with that, and then here we are talking together.
0: Right. Could you tell me a little bit about the model that you use to try to project different future uh, climate states based on the kind of decisions that people and organizations make now? And uh, in particular for myself and for my audience, because I've got more of a physical science background. A lot of my listeners are uh, researchers in physics, uh, the physical background, uh, physical sciences, and maybe some of the you know biogeochemical type sciences. So I think for me and perhaps for many of them, I don't have a very good sense of how one gets uh, psychological knowledge, social psychology knowledge, economic knowledge you know, into a quantitative model that makes quantitative pro- projections. That's an area that I, f- I feel pretty ignorant in actually. And if, if you could highlight a bit of how that is done, that would be really helpful too, as you described sure. that as the model.
1: Sure, so it's a great question. So my original training is in uh, a field we call system dynamics which is the application of nonlinear dynamical theory, control theory, feedback systems to, in my, in my case, uh, to human systems. So many of your listeners will be trained in physical sciences or engineering and are familiar with control theory or um, positive and negative feedbacks that drive the dynamics of complex systems. We're doing exactly the same thing using the same mathematics. Uh, the same simulation methods, but we're applying those tools to human systems like companies, markets, societies, uh, and environmental problems like the climate problem. So I'll give you an example, not about climate, to start out with. Uh, I've been doing some work with uh, colleagues, Professor uh, Hajir Rahmandad and one of our doctoral students uh, at Yang Lim, uh, modeling the COVID pandemic. Of course, there are many models uh, that have come out since the virus emerged, Uh, and most of them are in what's known as the SEIR family, susceptible, exposed, infected, and removed. Those are the state variables or the states of progression from you don't have it, then you were infected, but you're pre-symptomatic, the disease is in the incubation period, then you're infected and uh, infectious, and then you either recover or die and are removed from the pool of yeah. people who either could have or do have an active infection. Um, so those models are, are great. They go back many, many decades. They're widely used, but the traditional models don't include human behavior. It's as if you were you know, an animal in the forest with no ability to change your behavior. And that's clearly not the case. So what we have done is we've developed a system dynamics model of the pandemic in which human behavior plays an important role. So what does that mean? It means that, for example, once the disease emerges and uh, people become aware of it, become afraid of it, their behavior changes. We went into self-imposed isolation. We started wearing masks, we distance when we're outside, we wash our hands and use other hygiene practices more frequently and that feeds back to change the hazard rate of becoming infected. In our model we we include an endogenous treatment of how people perceive the risk not only the risk of getting covid of getting the SARS-CoV-2 um, virus but of of harm from it, of dying. And so as evidence emerges, as the information about how many people have it, how many people have had it, and how many people have died, that increases people's fear, increases their risk, uh, their perceived risk, and that takes time. So we model the time delay there. And then that drives their responses. That creates a very powerful negative feedback loop if the responses are strong enough, such that the um, incidence and eventually prevalence of active cases will fall, not because the epidemic has run its course, but because people change their behavior. There's also a very powerful feedback in which people who uh, find themselves living in a hotspot flee. Uh, This happened in New York City, it happened in Italy, it happened in the UK, it happens all over the world. Uh, So if they have the ability, they leave, and they often will take the virus unknowingly with them and start outbreaks in other areas. These behavioral feedbacks have been shown in work we and others have done to be very, very powerful and important in conditioning the evolution of an epidemic, uh, at least as powerful, if not more important, in shaping the course of an epidemic than differences in the uh, structure of the social contact network. And that's because it's changing the social contact network. What we did was we, we um, estimated our model for every country in the world that has at least a thousand cases and publishes sufficient data on their testing every day uh, for us to estimate the parameters. We're using, I don't wanna get too technical, but uh, we're using a hierarchical Bayesian estimation uh, method with uh, what's known as a random effects framework so that the parameters for each country are constrained to some extent by the parameters in other countries, Hmm. by the experience of the other countries. And that dramatically increases the power of the, or the size of the sample that we can use to estimate the parameters and gives us more accurate estimates. Uh, So what we're able to do then is estimate the true number of cases and the actual number of deaths from COVID-19, which is extraordinarily important because we know that the confirmed case data and the confirmed mortality data are significantly underestimating the true situation, but nobody knows by how much. So what our model does is it allows you to include these behavioral feedbacks, which shape the pattern of the epidemic. This is why you've got these initial rapid outbreaks followed by, in most nations, not all, a peak and a decline. And then in many nations, because it seems to be declining, people's perceived risk erodes Mm -hmm. and they open up their economy again and they start going out and bars and restaurants open up, and they stop wearing masks as much, and then you get a rebound outbreak mm-hmm. uh, because the risk has eroded. And that that's included in the model. And if you don't do that, you can't adequately replicate or explain what's been happening in many, many countries around the world, including the United States, Iran, Mexico, India. I mean, it, it's really an essential piece of the story. The bottom line of that work, which is out as a preprint, it's under review right now. So your readers need to know it hasn't been published yet. It's going through peer review right now, but it's still just a preprint and people can find it online. The bottom line is we estimate that across those 86 nations, which span almost 5 billion people in the world, the true number of cases we estimate is about 10 and a half times greater than the confirmed case count, which is a very substantial under reporting well, ratio. Yeah. And mortality is about 50% higher than reported. And that means that the uh, infection fatality rate, which is the conditional probability that if you get it, you will die on average across those nations is 0.65% which is very consistent with other estimates from specific countries or specific populations. Now that risk of death varies dramatically with age, right, and right. we find that also. Um, but it also varies dramatically with the capacity of the hospital and treatment system. So we know that, for example, in Italy, the uh, fatality rate has been very, very much higher than average. Um, and that's not just because the population of Italy um skews older than many other nations it's because people simply couldn't get into the hospitals they were overwhelmed so that's another endogenous social feedback that conditions the outcomes i mean this is a long example but uh it it gives a little bit of an idea of how you capture the human behavior that creates important feedback dynamics uh in a in a a formal simulation model and yeah Generally speaking, those human dynamics matter tremendously, and not just in the COVID situation, but in in most systems.
0: Right, yeah.
1: So you, you partially answered
0: one of the questions that I had was, when you're defining this dynamical system to represent a population and some state of that population I was picturing all of the parameters in those equations, right? Every term has multiple parameters and they all have to be estimated and they all will have uncertainties. And so um, not knowing anything in my mind, coming from the the physical world, physical modeling world, where we certainly do have lots of parameters, it's almost intimidating to think about like, gosh, if you try to include human behavior and include all these other factors that just increases the number of parameters, um, you know, pretty dramatically.
1: Uh, yes and no, right? Some of the models we build are are um, simple. I mean, just as in the earth sciences in the climate area, we have the huge, uh, you know, integrated AOGCMs with biosphere ocean atmosphere feedbacks and cryosphere dynamics and all of that. And those models are gigantic. They're, you know, those are the, I think they're the biggest models anywhere in the world. and They, they, they can only be run successfully on, you know, enormous supercomputer clusters. They yeah, have yeah. a lot of parameters, but you also have Earth system models of intermediate complexity and simple models, Earth system models uh, uh, that are uh, much, much smaller, aggregated, uh, low dimensional compartment models. Uh, and each of those different models has its own purpose. You know, there's never a question of which one is right. All models are wrong. Some might be useful, as George Box famously said. Uh, And the really important thing here is each model needs to be suited for its particular purpose. So it's the same in the modeling we do. Um, Some of the models we build are very large. Our COVID model is very large, has a lot of parameters. um, And we're able to estimate those uh, and assess the confidence intervals or the credible intervals uh, around around those estimates. Um, We use Markov chain Monte Carlo for that, um, and do a variety of other sensitivity tests. And we do synthetic data experiments where we take the model, give it parameters that are reasonable, run the model with noise, process and measurement noise. And then, since we know the so-called ground truth in that model, we can then estimate the parameters using our estimation method and see if we not only get the right parameters, but the right confidence intervals or credible intervals around them. And yeah, so we do. Um, but we also build these very, very simple low dimensional models. And in fact, coming back to our climate models our interactive climate policy models and there are two main ones C-ROADS the climate rapid overview and decision support system and N-ROADS the energy rapid overview and decision support system they are in the family of simple climate models low dimensional treatment of the carbon cycle the emissions atmospheric stocks removal fluxes for the other greenhouse gases similar low dimensional representation of transfer of heat to the ocean, uh, transfer greenhouse gas of carbon into the ocean, et cetera. Those models are far, far, far simpler than the big AOGCMs or the integrated assessment models that are used on the energy side. Right. And it's because the purpose of our model is fundamentally different. The, the large models, the AOGCMs, the IAMs are, of course, absolutely essential to make basic progress in understanding the dynamics of the climate, understanding how different policies might alter greenhouse gas emissions, and then you feed those into a climate model, you get some sense of what global average surface temperature might be going forward. Those models are absolutely essential. We rely on them in our work, but they're quite inappropriate for policy work and education. And it's because they take too long to run and they're opaque to... I'll call them lay users. The source code is obscure. It's not that available. And the cycle time for doing analysis is just far too long compared to the speed of policy or the needs of education. So I'll give you an example. Um, In 2013, 2014, um, the United States uh, negotiated a bilateral climate agreement with China. I was not personally involved, but uh, our model zero's model was one not the only but one of the analytical support tools that the uh, obama administration used to evaluate proposals that were coming from the chinese you know when it came down towards the end of that negotiation the united states had a team in beijing uh, negotiating on the ground there with the chinese and every time a new proposal would come to them they transmit it securely to the White House, and uh, National Security Council climate team would assemble with other key national security and administration officials. They'd see what the proposal was, and then they would try to evaluate what would it do if the Chinese agreed to this pattern of emissions for China, for example, peaking their emissions by 2030, which was their 2015 pledge under the Paris Agreement, What would that mean? Uh, Would that have a significant impact in reducing global emissions and climate impacts? Warming, for example, Uh, is it something we could live with? And the, the proposals were coming in fast and furious. So you've got to be able to basically evaluate them immediately so the negotiation doesn't get bogged down. You can't say, well, you know, your new proposal is quite interesting and in three months we'll have an analysis. That's right. Uh, that we can use to give you a yes or a no. Yeah, uh, you don't have time to submit yeah, it, it to the job queue so,
0: on a high-performance computing platform and wait for the yeah. results and wait for the uh, analysis you, just, yeah. and, you know.
1: Uh, plus, we've, we've um, designed the models and I'm happy to show them to you. They're freely available. All of your listeners out there can go to the website and get them all yeah. and try them themselves. Um, the models are designed to be usable by people who aren't PhD climatologists. So what you've got is a difference in purpose that drives the difference in model architecture and interface design and speed. Right, right. What
0: you're describing sounds a lot like um, there's a now classic paper by Isaac Held and where he describes the uh, model hierarchy in in our field generally. And, uh, And he describes basically what you've just described is that, well, at the very lowest level, you have a very simple, model with very few kind of moving parts so to speak there are just a few knobs you can turn but you think it captures the kind of simplest zeroth order characteristics of whatever system it is you're interested in and then there are different levels of complexity you know you can add levels of complexity as you go up the hierarchy until you get all the way to the really sophisticated uh, general circulation models like you're talking about or earth system models which include the cryosphere and the biosphere and um one of the interesting points that he made in this uh i think it was in the bulletin of the american meteorological society is he said that you can learn a lot by adding or taking away sources of complexity and seeing what happens like how your system changes between those levels so it's not just about having all those levels available to you it's also about well, you can compare the behavior of one model at this level to the behavior what happens when i add um, you know, different behavior in different countries, for example, what does that do to the picture
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, i I fully agree with that perspective uh, you know it's and it's because no model is true. all models are imperfect mm-hmm. only the only the real world is itself <laughs> models are uh, approximations and simplifications, and yeah. all models have gaps and biases and so uh, you know, we often do sensitivity, we and all other models, modelers, do sensitivity analysis uh, by varying parameters, uh, you know, within the credible intervals that capture the uncertainty in those parameters. Um, but, and that's essential, but that's only one kind of sensitivity analysis. It's also critical to do structural sensitivity analysis, which is what you just described. Mm-hmm. What happens if we alter the boundary of the model? simplify or add more detail? Does that change the critical conclusions in a way that's consequential? Uh, Often that's far more important than parametric sensitivity analysis. Although of course you have to do that too. Yeah, Yeah, so what we've done specifically that I think sounds totally consistent with what you described is our models are uh, in the family of uh, simple climate models. They're low dimensional. Uh, we we don't have spatial disaggregation. We're not treating the atmosphere with 20 or 30 layers and so forth. We have, I think, a four-layer ocean.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we're not disaggregating by ocean basins, uh, et cetera. But then what we do is we very carefully compare the behavior of the model and estimate the parameters so that it fits the historical data going back from 1850 through most recent data for concentration of CO2 methane and the other GHGs in the atmosphere sea level rise uh, global surface temperatures etc and then we were using the model for policy design and so it runs through 2100 and to make sure its future behavior is consistent with the other models we carefully compare how our model behaves to, for example, the integrated assessment models that are out there. Um, and the way we do that, of course, is we look at, well, what used to be you know the RCPs and today the uh, shared socioeconomic pathway scenarios that, that are used uh, in IPCC analysis. And we make sure that our model goes through the middle of the envelope of the pathways for a wide set of the IAMs for each of those SSPs and within them for each of the different radiative forcing levels that they look at. And it does. Now, it's not perfect. Um, there are differences, of course, but there are, the difference between what our model trajectory is for each SSP uh, and any given IAM is no bigger and is often smaller than the difference across the IAMs. So that gives us some confidence that we're consistent with the behavior of the big models, but then you've got our model being more suited for its purpose, which is giving people immediate feedback on what might happen if they try different actions and policies that would affect greenhouse gas emissions going forward. I'd be happy to show it to you. You know, we yeah. could we could take a look live, and yeah. you can you can see if you can save our climate going forward. So yeah, that would be great. Can you tell people where they can go to the the website? Yeah, so the En-ROADS model, which is the uh, most recent one, is available at enroads dot So that's e n hyphen r o a d s dot org. So good. if people go there. Uh, the model's completely free, and from the website that comes up when you do that, you'll find uh, access to the simulator itself. You'll also find all of the documentation, uh, videos, training programs, um, curriculum, uh, to use it with audiences, as we have done, from middle school up through college, graduate school, and with senior policymakers and leaders in business and civil society around the world. I Mm. think right now we've done interactive briefings for about 37 members of the United States Senate, about 60 members of the House of Representatives, seven governors, other folks on our team have uh, done similar briefings for a variety of elected leaders Mm. uh, in countries around the world. Good. Plus CEOs, C-suite folks, investors, other business leaders, and leaders in civil society.
0: Why don't yeah. I? Uh, why don't I describe what I'm looking at? And uh, we could, sure. could we? We could talk about, you know, maybe releasing a segment of this in, in video form. But for the podcast, I can kind of describe what I'm looking well, at a little. So why don't I
1: walk you through the interface real quick? And yeah, then if you're yeah. going to save the climate uh by limiting expected warming to no more than two degrees c (laughs) let's give it a try (laughs) all right so uh when you when you click into the main uh, screen on the interface uh what you see is uh in this graph on the top left global primary energy production by source from 2000 up through 2100 it's historical data up through the most recent on the bottom Mm -hmm. we have coal and then uh, that's, that's brown. Then the red band above that is oil. The blue one above that is natural gas. The green band above that are the uh, renewables. So that's hydro, wind, solar, geothermal, and the storage uh, for the variable renewables. Biomass on top of that and nuclear on top of that. Uh, the projection from 2020 onward is based on assumptions we've made about population GDP per capita growth, the energy intensity of the economy, and the carbon intensity of the energy systems. In this, in these projections, coal is
0: projected to continue to increase in terms of its uh, the energy right that it, that is generated from coal and uh, right. oil. Now these are as all, well.
1: That's right. These are all things you can change. Let's back and, up a second. Um, uh, the pattern of energy use that you see here. In that graph on the left, generates the pattern of greenhouse gas emissions that you see in the graph on the Mm -hmm. right. So, the green band at the bottom of this graph is emissions of uh, all greenhouse gases measured in CO2 equivalents uh, from land and land use change, forestry, etc. The big chunk, the biggest chunk in gray, is the CO2 from combustion of fossil fuels, mm. the coal, oil, and natural gas that you see on the left. The, uh, the next band is the contribution from the fluorinated gases, uh, then methane, and then nitrous oxide on top of that. One thing I should tell you all is uh, the roads model and the n roads model. In this graph, we're showing CO2 equivalents, but we actually represent each gas separately in the model with its own emissions budget, its own atmospheric stock concentration uh removal flux for example as the co2 is taken up by biomass or dissolves in the ocean as the methane is oxidized etc and each one of those gases has its own contribution to radiative forcing so of course we're displaying them here using the 100-year global warming potentials that are standard in the ipcc work but it's important for people to know that this is a real physics-based model with separate emissions, concentrations, Mm -hmm. removal flux, and radiative forcing contribution from each gas. And, you know, it's CO2, it's methane, it's N2O, and I think we have over a dozen different species of fluorinated gases, sulfur hexafluoride, many different um, flavors of HFCs, PFCs, CFCs. Because they vary in their atmospheric lifetimes and their, and their uh, radiative contribution, so right. so what you see here is total global primary energy grows through 2100, but at a diminishing rate, uh, and because this is a reference case that assumes no additional climate policies beyond what's already been implemented. Um, You do see a continued dominance of fossil fuels and so emissions grow as well and that carries the earth system to an expected warming of a little bit over four degrees c by 2100 you can see that the trajectory of temperature we cross the one and a half degree threshold before 2030 and the two degree threshold before 2050. yeah so that's not good that's nice. going to be catastrophic for our prosperity, our health, and in many places, our lives. And your challenge is, and you can vary the assumptions, right? So this is one scenario. Uh, if you're an aficionado, this is SSP2, um, the middle socioeconomic, shared socioeconomic pathway. Mm. We, we're not going to do it right now, but you can vary all these assumptions and try out a lower um, Energy, more renewably based pathway, even before climate policies, or one that's, you know, harder into the fossil fuels. Hmm. Uh, so, hmm. for example, we're using the UN median fertility population projection, which you see here. We're at about 7.6, 7.7 billion people on the planet right now. The UN median uh, median fertility scenario carries us to. Uh, somewhat less than 11 billion by 2100. And here you can see it by region with most of the growth happening in the developing nations. Uh, But you can change that. So uh, for example, if you believe the demographic transition is going to happen faster than the UN believes, we can pull this slider and lower the population growth. And as you do that, uh, you see population is peaking earlier, and actually dropping a little bit just due to lower fertility and the age structure of the global population. Uh, And with fewer people, there's less energy demand, fewer emissions, and the expected warming falls from 4.1C to 3.9. Similarly, you could try higher population if you think that the demographic transition will not happen as fast as the UN And you can do the same thing with the other key assumptions, economic growth and GDP per capita. You vary that, you get dramatic changes in how much energy people are using, and that changes emissions and changes temperature. And one of the things you see here is, you know, I I pull these sliders with my mouse, and you immediately see the consequence. Yes. And that's, that's essential. People can't learn if there's a delay in that, outcome feedback loop even as long as why don't you get a cup of coffee and when you come back the model results will be ready for you. That's just not going to work. Hmm. Um, so uh, if you don't like how much coal there is in the reference case, well you can change it. You know, pick, pick a different SSP or pick a different assumption about uh, the costs of renewables or other kinds of innovation in the reference case. Right. But let's work with this for right now. You're headed for catastrophe, 4.1 C of warming, 7.3 Fahrenheit by 2100. That has significant harmful consequences for humanity. For example, continued ocean acidification, sea level rise, Mm -hmm. uh, which you see here, well over a meter. Uh, and of course, as we discussed, all models are wrong in the sense that they're all imperfect approximations. So, you can change a lot of the assumptions. So if you go up here to the simulation menu and you select assumptions, you've got a huge number of assumptions that you can vary. I'm drilling down into the climate system parameters. So here's climate sensitivity. Well, we're using three degrees C as the equilibrium long-term climate sensitivity. But as you know, there's continuing uncertainty and debate about it. It could be lower, it could be higher. The current models are still running pretty hot. Maybe that'll get resolved. Maybe it won't. So, uh, you know, if you think we might get very, very lucky, we could lower that. You know, maybe it's only 2.3. Well, then uh, the expected warming is 3.4 degrees. Well, we could get very unlucky. Suppose it's 4.5 degrees C. Well, then we're looking at 5.3 C by 2100. Right, Right. Much higher sea level rise going along with that. And in the same fashion, you can change all these other parameters, uh, mixing of the ocean, so how quickly mm. the carbon and the heat in the surface layer of the ocean is subducted to the deeper and abyssal layers, the strength of the CO2 fertilization feedback, uh, how much additional sea level rise from melting of Greenland and, and uh, Antarctica there might be compared to uh, the base estimate, and of course that has a dramatic impact on mm. sea level rise and a variety of other parameters, including things that are still somewhat uncertain, like how much additional methane and CO2 will be emitted from melting permafrost, and at what threshold temperature does that nonlinear effect really start to kick in. So those are some of the climate parameters. You can vary all those, and then you've also got parameters about the energy system. What's the resource base of the fossil fuels? What about the potential for carbon dioxide removal technologies like mineralization or direct air capture, uh, agricultural sequestration? What about afforestation? What about, uh, how long it takes to develop and build and commission new plants like new nuclear plants or new solar facilities? Um, what's the progress ratio that conditions how much technological progress drives the marginal cost of all the different energy technologies down. And what about carbon mm-hmm. capture and sequestration? So you can change a wide range of these assumptions and see what the effect is and do interactive sensitivity testing yes. as you go along. So. One thing that uh, struck me, just
0: uh, as you were going through the climate sensitivity, that you, know, you decreased the overall climate sensitivity by quite a lot. You pulled down the, the slider by you know, a, a good bit. Um, but the temperature projection that we were still looking at, uh, that we were looking at still went into a pretty catastrophic <laughs> range. Yeah, so well, I think that so. maybe this debate isn't, or this, um, part of the conversation isn't as prevalent as it used to be, but there used to be, um, well, there used to be, uh, a school of thought who used to, uh, Hammered quite a lot on like well we don't know what the climate sensitivity is maybe it won't be so bad but i was really struck by like well yeah even if the sensitivity is lower than what we think it is we're still not headed in a good direction
1: right um, so yeah. it's a great observation and so let's just do it again if climate sensitivity was as low as two hmm. um you're still exceeding two degrees by about 2060 and you end up at around three Uh, by 2100. And of course it's still rising. Now, what's the probability of that? Well, it's low. We don't know what it is. My feeling is if you're willing to assume that we might get very lucky, you really owe it to yourself to assume that, or to look at the case where we're equally unlucky, that with the same probability, uh, we, we uh, were unlucky. So that would be maybe four and a half degrees C climate <laughs> sensitivity. Some people think maybe even higher. Hmm. And now you're looking at 5.3 C by 2100 and exceeding the two degree threshold around 2030. So as Steve he Schneider lives. and many other people have pointed out for years, uncertainty here is not your friend. You don't plan <laughs> for uh, the expected case you need to plan for the plausible worst case. And uh, if you're willing to look at the low probability that we get really lucky, you really owe it to yourself to look at the lower probability that we're very unlucky. And when you do that, you find that, of course, emissions would need to fall even farther, even faster, uh, in order to, uh, stay under two degrees. Yes. Yes. And of course, every 10th of a degree matters, whatever it turns out to be. So the harms don't just happen if we get to three, four, or five degrees. We're already observing significant harms from climate change. Today, people yes. are harmed. Sea level is already rising. We have sunny day flooding all over. Crop yields are being affected. Wildfire, disease, drought, drought migration, conflict, all these things are happening today. People are dying from climate change today. Mm -hmm. Uh, So every 10th of a degree of warming we can avoid helps preserve prosperity, stability, health, and lives. But you just did what we want people to do with the model, which is, oh, let's see what happens if we vary the assumptions. And yeah, we still have a problem, even if we get very, very lucky. All Right. right, so now expected warming, a little over 4C, 7.3 Fahrenheit by 2100, unacceptable. So Dan, what are you gonna do to bring that curve down so it's no more than two by 2100? And the options you have are, you could tax fossil fuels or regulate them. You could subsidize or promote with market-oriented policies, renewables, nuclear. You could put a price on carbon, Uh, You could work on the end-use side by improving energy efficiency or electrifying transport, buildings, industry, and industrial processes. Uh, You can work on land use by changing – reducing deforestation. You could go for the trillion trees policy and have an aggressive reforestation, afforestation program. You can work on the non-CO2 greenhouse gases, methane, N2O, the fluorinated gases. And you can try a wide range of different carbon dioxide removal, CDR technologies. What would you like to do? Okay, so this is kind of fun. And
0: I know that there's not a magic bullet. There's not going to be one thing that we can...
1: Start with what you think the highest leverage thing might be
0: then. If we were to just try one thing, uh, it would be interesting for me to try just the carbon price to start with, because that's something that... You know, you hear people talking about the, uh, about this. So yeah, if we went for a pretty aggressive...
1: So uh, let's try price. the carbon price. Yeah, let's see and, if that does. Uh, I'll round this off to $75 per ton of CO2. So that's a little higher than what some people talk about. For example, a lot of the oil companies have endorsed a carbon price hmm. of around $40 no. per ton of CO2. Hmm. Uh, of course, many of them have endorsed it publicly, but still work aggressively to prevent any such legislation from being passed. Mm -hmm. But let's try it out at $75 a ton. So what would that mean before we look at the outcome? So that would be raising the price of gasoline in the United States by about 66 cents a gallon or thereabouts. Mm -hmm which would still leave it far below the level it is in the UK or Europe, Um, it would be a few percent increase uh, in the price of gasoline for you folks. So what does it do? Uh, It lowered the expected warming from 4.1 C to 3.4. That's a huge impact. And of course the model allows us to, put in different pathways for the carbon price here. We're phasing it in over 10 years, but you could continue to increase it after that with different patterns if you want. But let's just keep it simple. That's a very high leverage policy. And you can see what it does. It uh, dramatically constrains coal. You get a little more natural gas being the least carbon intensive fossil fuel. You get a lot more renewables and you're also getting more nuclear. Um, Hmm. And So you're decarbonizing the energy system faster, but you're also getting efficiency gains on the end use side as people improve the uh, insulation and quality of the windows in their homes and commercial industrial buildings and so forth. So there's a drop in total energy demand. You can see that right here. Energy demand still grows over the century, but it's much lower because of the enhanced efficiency and uh, CO2 emissions drop off. They're almost flat now, Hmm. Hmm. approximately. So that's a very high leverage policy. But it's not enough. We're getting to 3.4. That's still a long way from 2. Yes. What else do you want to add to the mix?
0: Well, I noticed, you know, there are, like the UK, for example, has made a commitment to ramp down the kind of net Carbon emissions, uh, ideally to, to zero by 2050. Right. So why don't we try ramping down some of the coal use, uh, for example? Uh, do you think we can? So when think the coal lever or the coal uh, slider there, are we basically? Is this a policy lever that we would be using to say decrease the amount of coal that yeah. is available? So this goes beyond the carbon price. This is some sort of legislative. Uh, mechanism cool. for saying, well, let's decrease the amount of coal uh, investment.
1: Right, so exactly right. So the carbon price does uh, significantly disadvantage coal, and you see a big drop off in coal, uh, coal use with the carbon price. But coal is extremely cheap and very abundant. And in many parts of the world, uh, it's the go-to energy source still today so even though coal use is falling today in the developed economies in the u.s and in the uk and in europe for example new coal plants are still being designed permitted built and commissioned in asia right. uh, vietnam sri lanka funded by the chinese funded by the japanese etc china of course still heavily coal dependent even though they're trying to eliminate uh, coal so uh, you still see some coal. So let's try what you suggested. We can uh, click here and stop building all new coal infrastructure, no new coal-fired power plants, for example. Okay. The yeah, year that happens. you specify. So you tell me what year we should do that and existing plants would still be there, but no new plants would be built. Okay, let's give it a try. What year do you want to do that?
0: Why don't we do it soon? Why don't we do, uh, well, just for fun, why don't we try uh, this year, (laughs) 2020? That's probably unrealistic. Well,
1: you know, that's the purpose of the model. Try what you like. So here Mm -hmm. we go. No new coal infrastructure is uh, permitted starting in 2020. And that was also very helpful. Even with the carbon price that's already making coal um, unattractive, you get an additional 2 tenths of a degree of of, uh, reduction in the warming, we're down to 3.2. Now you'll notice that coal doesn't disappear fully until after 2050. That's because the existing coal plants stay in operation and by not building any new ones, but not doing anything else to promote alternatives yet What do you think happens to the price of energy? Hmm. It's going to rise a little bit above what it would have been, which makes it more attractive to keep those other remaining coal plants in operation longer. Right, right. Uh, And you enrich all the fossil producers at the expense of energy consumers. Hmm.
0: Okay, so that was really informative, then. That was really instructive doing that.
1: Uh, So it absolutely helps, but it also uh, shifts wealth from energy users, ordinary citizens, to the remaining folks who still have existing Mm -hmm. coal, oil, and gas capacity. So what else would you like to try? Let's invest in renewables. Let's see if we can get more renewable energy. So Um, you'll notice that the wedge of renewables here is already larger than in the base case so for comparison here's the base case Hmm. with your emerging scenario carbon price no new coal after 2020 the renewables is a much bigger wedge of primary energy production Hmm. right but now let's subsidize it or encourage it over and above that so uh there's different ways you can do this of course Every one of these levers, there's a regulatory approach you could apply. For example, in the coal case, you could simply, nations could pass new regulations saying we we simply, by law, you can no longer build a a new coal-fired electric power station um, or open a new mine. Uh, Or you could do it with a market-friendly approach, right? So in the case of the coal, you could say, we're going to buy your assets uh, pay you for the stranded assets that you might have here and that would be a more market-friendly approach so we don't take a position regulation versus free market policies uh there are multiple ways to get each of these actions implemented Uh, and that's an important aspect of the model we are rigorously nonpartisan in our approach Mm -hmm. the important thing is helping people learn for themselves about where the high leverage actions are and which which actions that are popularly discussed really don't matter that much. So Mm -hmm. let's let's encourage renewables. And you can do that with investment tax credits or production tax credits or renewable portfolio standards that mandate that you must have a certain amount of solar and wind, et cetera, in your energy mix. Or you can do it with pace financing for residential solar uh, property, property assessed clean energy uh, where your community can borrow the money more cheaply than you as an individual homeowner might. And if you're a person of color living in a minority, poor neighborhood or anybody living in a poor neighborhood, you don't have any capital, you can't afford to do this. Um, and uh, so these kinds of policies would be able to promote renewables and it, it, uh, it helps. Uh, you get a much bigger wedge of renewables But it takes a while for that to kick in. Mm. So it didn't have that much impact on temperature, about a 10th of a degree Fahrenheit. Wow, yeah. Um, And part of the problem is the renewables are generating electricity here, hydro, wind, solar. Uh, And your policies so far still leave us with quite a lot of natural gas and especially quite a large wedge of oil most of which is Mm. going into transportation. So what else would you like to do? Well, um,
0: a couple of episodes ago, I talked with Scott Denning, who's a climate scientist. And one of the uh, approaches that he mentioned that he's a big fan of is uh, electrification of everything, of transport. So I think that leads quite nicely on from what you just mentioned. So let's see if we encourage or incentivize electrification of transport in some way. How big of a, an effect does Let, that
1: have? Let's do it. So I'm going to pull that all the way. Mm. So massive policies to promote electrification of transport. Now, in our model, we're only assuming land-based transportation can be electrified. Water mm. and aviation, we're assuming you can't. OK, OK. So, so there have been some very interesting experiments with uh, electric aircraft. Uh, but there's no prospect right now for an electric jumbo jet to take us across the ocean. So we're just ruling that out and it made a substantial difference. It took us from 3.2 down to three. Um, Of course, it takes a long time for that to happen. Uh, So the electric share of final energy use and transportation, it grows only very slowly. And that's partly because of the chicken and egg problem with electric vehicles. So nobody wants to buy an electric vehicle unless they're sure they can get charging anytime and anywhere. And nobody's going to invest the money in building out ubiquitous charging infrastructure until they're pretty sure there's going to be a market. And that feedback is in the model. It's another one of those human behavior feedbacks. Uh, So you do get substantial electrification, but it takes uh, quite a while for that to happen. And it's worth two tenths of a degree. Now it's only worth that much because you've decarbonized the electric grid to a great extent with your carbon mm-hmm. price, with your ban on coal con- new coal construction and with your promotion of renewables. And just to illustrate that, if we go to the reference case here and we electrify to the same degree, it makes almost no difference. Mm-hmm. The reason is look at the coal wedge, right? So mm-hmm. here we go, base case, have the electrification of transport. What happens to the electric grid? Well, you've done nothing to decarbonize it or penalize coal, so you get a lot more coal. You get more natural gas too. The oil wedge is shrinking, but you're basically eliminating or substituting um, emissions out of tailpipes of cars. You're substituting emissions from smokestacks of coal power. Right, right. The, ultimately, you're still
0: burning carbon <laughs> to, right. you know, to get that uh, transport done. So it's okay, so, really interesting. Uh,
1: electrification now, what do you want to do about buildings? Buildings. Personal, residential well, and industrial buildings and processes.
0: So why don't we, since we tried electrification on transport, why don't we pursue energy efficiency on the buildings and industry tab there to see, does Great. that
1: make much of an effect? So, I'm dramatically increasing energy efficiency Ooh. for buildings and in industry. Now, what does that mean? It means on the margin, new construction is going to be much more efficient than it would have been, even with your carbon price. And also, existing buildings can be retrofitted. Now, usually not as much as what would be optimal for new construction. So, I'll give you an example my house is uh, almost 100 years old. And it's a traditional New England style stick frame home, meaning the walls are made out of two by four studs. And there's about two inches, therefore, it's about three and a half inches of space between the inside the wall. And of course, when the home was built, that was totally uninsulated. Um, If I blow insulation in there, which we have done, that'll improve energy efficiency, but not as much as would be optimal. So uh, retrofits happen. There's a lot of buildings in the world. They use a lot of energy, and those buildings, by and large, can be retrofitted. It has a huge effect. We're now down to 2.8 degrees.
0: 2.8. Okay. Um, So I think I know what I'd like to try next, if we could. Go for Um, it. So I noticed that looking at the greenhouse gas net emissions, that uh, methane still makes up a pretty big right of the of that of those emissions Uh, so i thought that might be an important place to see if we can reduce uh, methane emissions and and, yeah you know methane.
1: sorry go ahead um so i'm showing you the graph here of um of the non-co2 ghg emissions here and compared to the reference case you can see that they're lower they more or less flatten out after 2040. That's because with the carbon price, with less coal, with the promotion of renewables and the electrification and energy efficiency, total energy demand is down. Mm. Total emissions of methane from the energy system, including leakage all the way through the natural gas distribution system is down. And there's less methane uh, being generated from from other related industrial sources. other gases too, but uh, let's try some additional policies here. Uh, So if I pull the slider, I'm reducing the generation of methane, uh, chlorinated gases and nitrous oxide Hmm. from both industry and agricultural land use. Uh, And that makes a big difference. Hmm. Uh, We're Hmm. down to 2.4. And of course, you know, the reason it makes a big difference. These are very, very powerful, greenhouse gases, molecule for molecule, far more po- powerful than CO2. Yes, yes, the idea
0: from what I understand is that, yes, per molecule, they contribute much more to the radiative forcing. Uh, it's thought that they're shorter lived in terms of their total exactly lifetime right. in the atmosphere. That's right, so, of-
1: so both of those things help you, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Nitrous oxide uh, has a long atmospheric lifetime, but methane has a short lifetime approximately 20 years, much shorter than CO2. So when you cut the emissions of methane, you're not only reducing the flux of methane into the atmospheric stock, but that atmospheric stock decays quicker. So you see a bigger reduction in the stock of methane in the atmosphere, and that drives a larger contribution to the reduction in radiant force. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and since a methane molecule is many times more powerful as a warming agent than CO2, you see a big effect from this. So what would that mean in the real world? It means um, reducing leakage from the natural gas production distribution use supply chain, all the way from the wellhead to uh, people who are burning natural gas in their homes or to heat buildings or use industrial processes. It means reducing methane emissions from land use from landfills, for example, capturing that gas, maybe using it to turn a turbine and make electricity, uh, et cetera. These are all things that can be done and they have a big impact, 2.4. What else would you like to do? Okay, well, in the interest of trying a few different,
0: continuing to to try many different options, even though I don't think it's gonna make a big difference, I am curious about the carbon removal portion and I'm not an expert in this area in terms of how feasible that is, but I think it's, it is something that you hear people talking about and it has a kind of appeal to it because, you know, you can imagine CO2 is such a long lived gas that perhaps at some point we will have to consider uh, using technological approaches to decreasing right. the concentration of it in the atmosphere. So it's worth a try, It'll, it would be interesting to see if we you know, implement some, carbon removal uh, uh, aspect okay. of the system here to see if that
1: can get us below two because we're not quite there or we're still at 2.4 degrees. 2.4 warming. expected warming. So that's mm-hmm. you know roughly a 50% chance. Those aren't great odds, but uh, so the model includes a wide range of uh, carbon dioxide removal CDR technologies. You can uh, try them all together or you can pick, pick ones that you think are more likely to become economic are closer to commercialization. So we have BECS, so that's bioenergy with carbon capture and sequestration. We have DAC, direct air capture. Uh, There's pilot plants around the world, but even the proponents will tell you that the cost today is $200 a ton of CO2. And those are the people who are promoting these businesses. So uh, it might get better, but right now it's not Close to commercialization you have enhanced mineralization and you have agricultural soil sequestration and finally biochar so which ones are closest to being deployable today uh, agricultural practices yep yeah, probably um, so let's let's we try that yeah let's try that try that uh, oops uh, and uh, Starting today, you can vary the year that you think this is gonna happen, but let's assume we can change some of our ag practices today. And, and let's go for half the estimate of the global potential for that. You're not gonna get uniform deployment. Um, and mm-hmm. biochar, you know, let's assume that that's feasible today. Uh, we'll try 50% of its potential. BEX, BEX is something that's not really ready today, but with the carbon price you've put in, let's assume that it becomes economically feasible and we'll go for 50% of its potential. And we're now down to 2.2. So that contributed quite a bit. Now, what about DAC and mineralization? Well, let's look at direct air capture. So it's definitely not ready yet. And even at your carbon price, it's not economic. So why don't we assume that it becomes economic by, well, you tell me what year? 2040. 2040, great. And then what if we could get 50% of its potential? Here we go, 50%. And it didn't change the warming very much. Partly because you're assuming it's not going to become viable economically until 2040. We can change that if it happens sooner even right now today, didn't change the temperature. We're at 2.2. And I can assume the breakthrough in DAC is today still doesn't change things. Mm. Let's let's drill down and see what's really going on. So here's a graph that shows all the sources of CO2 removal now. So the purple one is BEX. On top of that, we've got biochar. On top of that, we have AG. And on top of that, we have contribution from DAC. Now we could be wrong about the potential for all these, and you can go up to the assumptions and change those. But uh, one of the things you'll notice here is, we're getting, adding all of those up, we're getting about eight gigatons a a year of CO2 being removed from the atmosphere from all of these CDR technologies. And that level is reached by about 2040. Uh, Hmm. So that's a lot. But, uh, and you can see in this graph, then we now have a significant wedge of negative emissions. And most of the scenarios, almost all the scenarios that uh, are reported in the IPCC one and a half degree special report from two years ago, they require negative emissions to have any chance of getting under two and certainly towards one and a half. Uh, So we're seeing those negative emissions now Uh, but it takes time to build up to that level. The carbon in some of these technologies doesn't stay sequestered forever. So you can increase the flux of carbon into the soils, but bacterial and fungal respiration will release some of that back into the atmosphere. Uh, And and so it helps. We got an additional 2 tenths of a degree of C, reduction in warming, but it's no silver bullet. Right. So right. what else would you like to try? <laughs> well, uh, we started near the beginning of the
0: conversation. You were talking about afforestation, right? You're writing this blog post about about that. Okay. Maybe we should give that a try. And that might give you a nice way to talk about your blog post as well.
1: Right. So, so let's plant a trillion trees. Okay. Well, let's so see. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll pull that afforestation lever all the way over mm. and it's worth a 10th of a degree. <laughs> uh, and and so why? So to really see why, because now we've got a scenario with a lot going on. Let's yes. go look at the base case again and I'll pull that trillion tree lever all the way over. Mm. It goes from 4.1 C to four. It's worth a 10th of a degree. Right, uh, a trillion yeah. trees. Uh, now why? So and. Uh, you can see it does reduce net emissions because we're getting negative emissions from uh planting all those new trees. This is the temperature pathway. There's no significant change until the out years of the century. So, how come? Well, the first thing is it just takes a long time to plant all those trees. There's a delay in securing the land. There's another delay in planting the trees. We can change those parameters. And then most importantly, it takes a long time for trees to grow big enough to be removing a lot of carbon. You know, you plant a sapling or a little tree and the amount of carbon in those when you plant them is measured in grams. The next year, it's a few grams more. The next year, a few grams more. It's not until they're quite large that they have the leaf area to be removing a lot of CO2 every year. And so uh, you can change the assumptions about how long on average it takes trees to grow. The carbon in trees, of course, doesn't stay out of the air forever. Those trees will eventually die, decay, burn, or be harvested for bioenergy or pulp and paper or lumber products. And eventually all that carbon will make its way back to the atmosphere. You can change the assumption about that. You can see the tree program is getting you about six gigatons per year by about 2080 because of the slow growth and that's not nothing but it's not enough and it comes too late to make a huge difference the other issue is you need an awful lot of land for this so uh, the blue line here is the land required and it eventually becomes about twice the total land area of all of India. Now, some folks like uh, you you may be familiar with the paper by Bastin et al that was published in Science uh, last year uh, where they inventoried all what they believe to be all the possible places in the world where you could plant trees and then estimated how much carbon that would take up if you did. Uh, And that's basically the scenario you see here. Mm. That paper has been aggressively challenged by many people on multiple grounds, including the land isn't actually available. Um, If you plant forests on some of that land, it would actually reduce the albedo of the earth and contribute to warming, undermine the carbon benefits, Mm. trees. Um, there isn't enough water. Trees may not live as long as you believe they will. What about poaching and legal logging, etc? And what about food production if you plant trees where land is currently needed or going to be needed for cropland or pasture to feed a population growing towards 11 billion. So these are all active areas of, of debate. Uh, but even if you do plant all these trees, it doesn't make a big difference, no. even if we could plant them you know now i'm really being aggressive here. Yeah. I'm assuming you could secure all the land you need instantly in yeah. one year and plant all the trees much, much faster. you know maybe you can plant all trillion in just five years. it's still only worth another tenth of a degree. This is every
0: every human on earth basically participating in this project.
1: (laughs) Which, you know, planting trees is a wonderful thing to do in many places. Uh, Mm -hmm. If we we, uh, planted a lot more trees in our cities, it would uh, moderate the urban heat island effect. It would contribute to a little more biodiversity in our cities. It would provide shade and opportunities for recreation and uh, it would help make our cities more beautiful these are good things to do Mm -hmm. Uh, similarly trees help uh, with uh, the hydrological cycle they help with preventing biodiversity now biodiversity loss now you've got to try to plant the trees so that you get a good approximation to the natural forest that was probably there before a plantation consisting of a monoculture of fast growing species like loblolly pine, that's not going to do it. First of all, it doesn't sequester as much carbon per hectare. And plantations are typically harvested after a couple of rotations, about 30 years, you harvest replant. But that what do you harvest it for? You harvest it for wood chips for bioenergy, which puts that carbon right back into the air, or for pulp and paper. And most of that carbon pretty quickly goes back into the atmosphere. So plantations are not the way to do it. So I think the bottom line on this is in many parts of the world, it's quite important to reforest and afforest afforest to plant new trees, but it is no silver bullet. It right. doesn't solve the climate crisis. And even more interesting, if people believe that it is, uh it distracts us from what's really important here which is keeping the fossil carbon in the ground right the vast majority of the emissions are coming from burning fossil fuels Uh, so this has real practical impact so i work closely with a lot of large corporations and many of them uh, are very aggressive and sincere about reducing their carbon footprints but if you look closely at their programs Uh, So, for example, Microsoft and Amazon and Apple all in the last year announced pretty good programs to reduce the carbon impact of their operations. Um, A lot of renewable energy, a lot of solar, uh, high efficiency. You know, if you go to the new Apple headquarters, it's a very impressive facility on many, many counts, including it's quite efficient and has a huge solar array on the roof. That's all great, but that doesn't get their footprint down to zero. So Mm -hmm. all three of those companies, as part of their plan to get towards net zero, they include significant offsets from forestry. Well, it just doesn't add up. Planting trees, as good as it may be, only reduces carbon after many, many decades when the trees Mm -hmm. can get large enough, Mm -hmm. but the fossil energy that you're burning today with certainty goes into the atmosphere today and contributes to warming today. So the idea that planting trees offsets your fossil combustion just isn't true. Right. Right. And there are other kinds of offsets that you can imagine that would matter more. Mm -hmm. So I have a framework for thinking about offsets that I call AVID plus, AVID plus. In order to have a legitimate offset, it needs to be additional, meaning it actually has to reduce emissions below what they would have been, it has to be verifiable, it has to be immediate, and it has to be durable. Hmm. And the plus is any offset program you do use, if possible, you should look for opportunities to contribute to other important social and economic needs, co-benefits, improving health, improving um, jobs, uh, increasing the resilience of our communities. So let's look at forestry from that framework real quickly. Protecting forests from logging or planting trees is sometimes additional and sometimes not. You could designate these hectares as being now protected in some sort of a preserve or a new national park. But if you're not protecting enough of your tropical or subtropical or boreal forest, loggers legally or illegally can cut down adjacent tracks. So that would not be additional. Uh, verification is a big issue for forestry offsets. How do you know that they were planted? How do you know they weren't cut down or wiped down in a farm? Immediate, no. Planting trees is clearly not immediate, whereas the uh, fossil fuels you're claiming to offset are immediately going to be putting CO2 in the atmosphere with certainty, whereas your offset would only do so long, uh, long into the future and not for certain. And durability, well, trees don't live forever. Wildfire, insect pests, disease, water stress, extreme weather, All of these can kill, knock down your trees, and then eventually that carbon goes back in the air. And all of those are getting worse as the climate warms. So forestry offsets are not, uh, they don't meet the requirements for a good offset. Hmm. A good alternative that does, I believe, would be significantly increasing the energy efficiency of residential commercial structures. And especially low and moderate income housing, especially for the poor, especially for disadvantaged communities, uh, communities of color and other groups. Um, we, we saw that when we discriminated Yeah, and we saw that when we did energy efficiency mm-hmm. and, and this is, and we can do energy efficiency for transportation too. And there you are at two degrees. Congratulations, you've made a healthier, safer, not safe, but safer world for you, your children and for all the children. Mm-hmm. Well, let's come back to energy efficiency for a minute as an yeah. office. Uh, so I told you my house is about a hundred years old and, and so forth. So about five years ago, my wife and I did a deep energy retrofit on our own home. What that meant was, uh, a lot of insulation, including because the walls aren't thick enough to put the optimal amount of insulation inside. We did that, but it's not enough. We added extra insulation to the exterior of all the walls and the roof. We replaced the windows with high performance windows. We uh, completely eliminated the natural gas heating system, ripped it out completely, and replaced it with air source heat pumps. We've got high efficiency appliances, LED lighting everywhere, heat pump, hot water, um, energy recovery ventilation. So we tightened the building envelope by a factor of 10 and the energy recovery ventilation gives us fresh air in all the rooms, but without wasting the energy we've used to heat or cool the home and and a solar array on the roof. Uh, And we've now got five full years of experience And over those five years, we have made almost 50% more energy than we use with no fossil fuels. And the payback time is quite short because uh, we did it in the context of a renovation that the house needed to have done anyway. Mm -hmm. And there's co-benefits for us as well. The house is now far more comfortable. It's actually larger because Having ripped out the old heating system and the radiators, each room is now bigger than it was before in terms of usable space. It's a lot quieter because all that extra insulation filters out more noise from the street um, and so forth. So, and maintenance is a lot lower. And so I have no electric bill, no natural gas bill, no bill for heating and cooling and Uh, the surplus is so big that my electric utility owes us more than $4,000. So the next step in our journey is electric vehicles, but since I'm a bicycle commuter, I'm not gonna start driving even if I got an electric car. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, donating that surplus to, uh, to organizations in my town who need it. So I was able to do that because, you know, quite frankly, MIT professors are affluent people But what about somebody who's living in a uh, low-income housing unit in an apartment? Uh, They don't have the money to do what I did. And anyway, you've got what we call the landlord-tenant problem, which in economics is an agency, principal agent problem. Uh, And that arises because most tenants are paying their own utility bills. So they would benefit a lot from insulation, better windows, high-efficiency appliances, a new heating system but the landlord would have to pay for those things. And so landlord pays, gets no benefit, consumer gets the benefit, but doesn't control the system. So it doesn't happen. Uh, So that's a market failure. And if that can be overcome and the capital can be provided to do these deep energy retrofits, especially in low income housing, there's a tremendous potential for emissions reductions, for reductions in energy use, and for co-benefits. And if you think about the framework we just discussed, um, these kinds of energy retrofits for low-income and moderate-income housing are additional because the poor can't afford to do it without some sort of assistance or policy or or, um, change in uh, contracts Mm -hmm. between landlords and tenants. So it would be additional it's verifiable because you know when those energy retrofits are done you can compare the uh energy consumption after to before they're immediate takes a year or so to do these projects so they're immediate not like uh, planting trees and they're durable uh we've extended the life of our house here probably many 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 decades by doing what we did Mm, that's great and there's a big plus the plus is especially for the poor, and this has been done in places around the world, in the UK, in New Zealand, and in this country here. Uh, When you do this, the poor no longer have to choose at the end of every month when their money has run out. They don't have to choose anymore between heating and eating. Every winter in the UK, in the cold part of the United States, anywhere it's cold in the winter, The poor have to choose between heating and eating. And we know what they're gonna do, you gotta eat. So we know what happens. They turn the thermostat down to as low as it goes and they wear parkas and hats and mittens in their own apartments. Hmm. But it's not enough. They still suffer from bronchitis and pneumonia and uh, acute attacks of COPD at a far higher rate. And they show up in the emergency room and they get treated at high cost, but their health is degraded. Their Mm -hmm. kids don't do as well in school. The parents might be at risk of losing their jobs because if they or their kids get sick, they can't show up and they're likely to be fired. And so when you do this, when you do a deep energy retrofit on low-income housing, all of a sudden people can turn that thermostat up to a normal temperature still have lower utility bills. So there's more income in their pocket. They don't have to choose between heating and eating. The house is warmer, more comfortable, safer. And the incidence of these uh, acute health problems, the pneumonias and the bronchitis, et cetera, goes down, which improves the quality of their lives, improves their life outcomes, and lowers healthcare costs. So there's a tremendous array of co-benefits that arise from offsets that would improve the energy efficiency of low and moderate income housing. Uh, That's a huge opportunity for emissions reductions and it's also a huge business opportunity. And there's startups in various parts of the world now that are stepping into that market. Uh, It's like an ESCO that offers you a PPA for a solar installation. They'll come into your building And uh, if the landlord agrees, um, they'll replace the old inefficient fossil powered heating system with um, heat pumps and potentially upgrade the insulation and windows and appliances and so forth. And then they get a chunk of the savings and then the landlord and the tenants get a chunk of the savings. These are both huge opportunities for reducing emissions, but also Uh, profitable businesses and improving the health and welfare of the folks in our society who have contributed the least to the climate problem because the poor don't use as much fossil energy as the affluent uh, but are suffering the most from it
0: Hmm. do you mind i might um that's really good by the way thank you for that i might stop the video sharing part to see if we get a little bit better bandwidth oh sure Um, unless there was another bit we wanted to talk about there.
1: No, I uh, think, you know, you did a, you did a great job. You've, you've, <laughs> uh, you now got a scenario that uh, limits the expected warming to two degrees and you did it without any technological magic. Mm. You, you didn't assume fusion suddenly becomes possible or, or direct air capture, you know, suddenly becomes uh, mm. economically attractive uh, or that there's some other magical breakthrough. Now, you know, I'm an MIT professor, I love technology. Innovation is great. We're gonna need every, every bit of technological savvy and innovation we can to address this challenge and the other challenges of sustainability in our society. But it's not a strategy to count on a breakthrough. Breakthroughs cannot be scheduled. Yes. And what you've done is you've discovered one scenario, and it's not the only one, But one scenario that keeps the fossil carbon in the ground, dramatically improves energy efficiency, uh, reduces emissions from the methane, nitrous oxide and the fluorinated gases, uh, does it with policies that we can implement today, Mm -hmm. price on carbon, reduce or eliminate new coal development, promote renewables, promote energy efficiency, electrify end use. These are all things that can be done today. No magic required. Uh, that's really important, what you've discovered here. It <laughs> means that this is still possible from a physical, technical, economic point of view. Yes. But there's no one silver bullet. Instead, what you've got here is uh, multiple things need to happen. Mm-hmm. They need to happen quickly you've got a silver buckshot strategy, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, mm. and this is, this is a, a very important insight. I'll do one more thing, uh, which is this button up here, you can copy the scenario you just did and I'm going to paste it into the chat here. Oh, great. Okay. So now if you click on that link, it'll take you immediately to what you're seeing on my screen the scenario you've just created. And you can tweet it out and share it on social media with your colleagues and friends and family. And they can say, that's a great scenario, Dan. Or they can say, no, I don't like that. You know, I like (laughs) nuclear or I want something else. Or you don't have enough electrification of the uh, building sector or uh, whatever it might be. And they can build on, criticize, enhance your scenario and share it around. That's great. Thank you for that.
0: I was looking at the time and I'm kind of conscious of, I don't have you for too much longer. So I thought um, maybe I'd like to ask you a couple more things, you know, here at the end, if that's all right. Um, so considering your uh, academic field, and I'll let you kind of define the boundaries of that, however you want, um, what are, can you identify one of the big challenges, one of the biggest places that, where your field uh, is kind of drilling into Uh, system dynamics in general as related to the climate problem or to sustainability problems, Um, you know, is there one particular place where uh, that's really challenging for you and your
1: colleagues to work on? Well, that's a great question. So there are many challenges, but I'd say the biggest ones are around creating an environment in which people can learn for themselves. Mm. Uh, I think it's clear The climate problem is no longer an issue of what does the science say? Science is clear, it has been for a very long time. It's also not an engineering problem. Of course, more innovation is welcome, it's needed, but we have today almost all the technologies we need ready to go off the shelf to reduce our carbon emissions quickly enough and deeply enough to give us a good shot at limiting warming to no more than two. Uh, You know, everything I did in my house, basically I could go to Home Depot and get what I needed. Uh, So it's not a physical science problem. It's not an engineering problem. It's not even an economic problem. The um, cost of reducing emissions is very, very low. And in many cases it's negative, meaning it's profitable to improve the energy efficiency of buildings today. It's profitable to put solar and wind with storage these are now cheaper than fossil sources in many parts of the world. Uh, so it's not an economic problem. And that's even before you count the co-benefits. If you count the co-benefits, reductions in PM 2.5 and other sources of air pollution created by fossil fuel combustion, if you count the job creation, if you count the improvement in community resilience, et cetera, it's too cheap not to do it. Mm-hmm. It's a So where's the problem? The challenge, the problem is it's psychological, it's it's a matter of social change and political change. And by psychological, uh, I mean, people, people's mental models about this problem are often um, quite poor mm-hmm. in, in multiple ways. So one mental model problem is people believe that if you, stabilize emissions, you will stabilize the climate and stop the warming. I've done many experiments with this. Um, You can go back to an article in Science from, I think, 2008, uh, where I reported an experiment on this with MIT graduate students, and 84% of them wrongly believe that you could stabilize the concentration of co2 in the atmosphere if you just stabilized emissions at their current levels which are approximately twice as large as the flux of co2 being removed from the atmosphere so what they're saying is well we could have a a bathtub in which we're continuously pouring more water into the tub from the faucet twice as fast as it's draining out but the level of water in the tub won't change. This is a very pervasive mental model. It's been, this result has been replicated with folks all around the world. And it's not about, well, I'm not trained in climatology and I don't understand the carbon cycle. You give people the same problem, but with a cover story, like you have money coming into your bank account, money going out of your bank account, or you have water going into a tub and water going out, the same problems arise. People don't understand stocks and flows. They don't understand uh, accumulation. The consequence of that is they, they believe uh, if you just stop the growth of emissions, you very quickly stop the increase in climate change. Just not true. So there's these kind of bad mental models about dynamical systems. But there's also bad mental models about... Um, the costs of uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Many people still believe that, yeah, climate change is real, it's caused by humans, it's a very serious threat, but it's just too expensive. We can't afford to cut emissions. Uh, well, that's just not true. Maybe 20 years ago, it was very expensive, but you know, solar energy has fallen 90, 90 plus percent in the last decade or two, and uh, renewables, including storage for when the sun doesn't shine and the wind don't blow is now cheaper. It's in many parts of the world, including many parts of the United States, it is cheaper to design, permit, build and operate a renewable energy facility like utility scale solar and offshore wind than it is just to operate existing fossil facilities. Mm. Uh, The costs keep coming down uh, but people's mental models lag behind. And it's the same with energy efficiency. People tell me that um, the, uh, so we, we developed a new building for, for my school, the Sloan School of Management at MIT. Uh, I was co-chair of the building committee. All the design decisions were made in around 2005. We occupied the building in 2010. So it's a decade old. It's a very efficient building for its day, uses 70% less energy for heating and cooling than the standard building. Um, and when I ask people, how much do you think it cost in design and construction, the upfront capital costs to do what we did in the building? The modal answer is 20% more. The real answer is almost 0% more. <laughs> and this is typical of green buildings. And that was 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you can do even better today. Um, And the reason is, yeah, we spent more on good windows and a lot of insulation and so on and so forth, but because it uses so much less energy, the HVAC system is dramatically smaller, saving a lot of money. The, um, uh, The capacity to deliver steam and chilled water for heating and cooling is much less, and that saves a lot more money. So you have these offsetting savings, People's mental models don't come up with that very readily. Mm -hmm. People think it's way too expensive to address the problem. And then that gets to the most important mental model of all, which is because people have these um, outdated understandings of how, where they believe it's so much more difficult and so much more expensive and will harm the economy uh, to to address the climate problem, they come away from exposure to the problem feeling a sense of despair or helplessness and hopelessness. Hmm. And people can't stand that kind of dissonance. So what they then do is they'll either deny it's a problem or they'll just put it out of their mind and say, you know, I've got bigger problems than climate uh, you know, I won't live long enough to see these impacts, which is also wrong. And so one of the main values that we've Sorry, discussed you froze there. so let me just back it up a little bit. So if people continue to believe these false narratives, that it's very expensive to address the problem that it's gonna hurt the economy. These are not true. It's actually going to help our economy. Mm-hmm. If people believe them, then when you show them more, data about climate change they just get more and more upset they get uh, they feel helpless they feel hopeless they they will experience despair and nobody can stand that so uh then what they do is they say well you know technology will save us or markets will solve the problem so so don't worry and that's not true if we don't step up if we don't take action we're not going to get the legislation, the correction of the market failures, the technological progress, uh, the deployment of carbon free energy sources and efficiency that we need to solve this problem. So at the end of the day, you've got to create an environment in which people can learn what the opportunities are for themselves. Mm -hmm just showing people the, the data and the science doesn't work. Research shows that showing people research doesn't work. And that's not just yeah. in climate. It's for things like you need to wear your seatbelt and your motorcycle helmet. You, um, you shouldn't, you know, engage in binge drinking. You should not smoke. These it's are nice. things you can tell people over and over. You can show them the science and it's really hard for their behavior to change. Yeah. So what we have done here, and I think, the the real value of what we've done in a way that's rigorously grounded in the the best available peer-reviewed science is we've created a a learning environment in which people can try whatever they like for themselves. They experience the consequences in the simulation immediately, and they discover the insights. Uh, if, uh, If I tell people this is what we need to do to address the climate problem, it doesn't do any good. And in fact, people will argue and get defensive and poke holes and they're right to do that. Nobody should believe something because some expert tells you. Hmm. Uh, you've got to, you know, argument from authority is an unacceptable kind of argument hmm. Hmm. that's antithetical to science. Uh, so What we've done is we've created a laboratory where people can try their own experiments, get immediate feedback. And we know from evaluative studies we've done, pre-test, post-test kind of design, uh, that it works. And it works not just because people learn more about the science, it works because they become more emotionally engaged. Hmm. They, They come away from the experience we've done here today with a greater sense of urgency, and a greater sense of agency. Yes, Hope. Almost,
0: almost a better intuition too about what some of the possible futures might look like. Because right. you, uh, so f- for for me, you know, I spend most of my time just thinking about the physical system. But it was really engaging to move some of the sliders around and to consider the different options. And to see that, you know, I was surprised by some of the sensitivities. Some things were more effective than I thought they would be. Some things were less effective than I thought they would be. Some things were about kind of what I was guessing. But that yeah. helped to shape my intuition about how that whole connected system behaves, which is is really helpful when you're trying to envision and imagine possible different futures. So, so it's, it's a good tool for that. Yeah, absolutely.
1: That, that's exactly right. And, and you know, in my experience, personally briefing many senators and members of Congress and governors, as well as students of all ages, that's exactly what happens. Um, mm-hmm. And, and you know, I'll tell you, I've sat down with, uh, with individual senators and very often you know, show them the model. And, and one of the first things they do is they say, okay, I see how it works. Now tell me what we should do to solve mm-hmm. the climate crisis and and my answer is no sir that's not how it works i'm not going to tell you what we ought to do first of all i don't represent your constituents you do you (laughs) you know what they want and it's not my job to tell them what the objective function ought to be Hmm. Uh, and secondly even if i did uh, it wouldn't do any good (laughs) so so please what would you like to try to bring that expected warming down to two or less Right. Right. And, and then they get into it and, um, uh, and they've learned a lot. Uh, you know, obviously, obviously I'm not going to name any names, but we've had senior political leaders, senators, governors, et cetera, uh, come away from this experience saying things like, well, you know, a lot of levers we pulled in the, in the model are things that our current energy plan for say my state as a governor, um, are already, uh, proposing, but, uh, You know, I was surprised how much energy efficiency for uh, buildings and industry matters. And so I'm I'm going to take a hard look at that and we're going to see what we can do there (laughs) for new construction and retrofits. Um, Uh, That's a big, big insight. Or on the electrification of transportation, uh, you know, unless you're simultaneously decarbonizing the grid, it doesn't do as much good for you. And even if you're doing that, it still takes a very long time for turning over the fleet. You know, the average car in the United States, light-duty like vehicle, SUV, or car, lasts around 15, 16 years now. Mm-hmm. Quality's improved over the years. So uh, even if all new cars, 100% of all new car sales from this moment, right now today, were electric, and you could charge them with 100% green electrons, the installed base, the vehicle fleet out there would still be powered by fossil fuels for decades to come. So that naturally raises the question, well, what could you do to drain that stock faster? And this is a conversation that we've had with members of the Senate and governors and um, members of the house. and, And then they come up with the idea, well, what if we did another cash for clunkers program like we did during the financial crisis? Well, that's pretty important. Uh, we're, we're, we've written some papers looking at this. Uh, it's, it's, But the important thing is the mental model shift from how do we get more electric cars on the road to how do we get rid of the cars that are burning gasoline and diesel today? Mm-hmm.
0: There's a question I really want to make sure that I ask you well, in the last little bit while I have you here, um, I often ask my guests a series of questions about what they've learned. And I think of all of the guests that I've had so far, there's a one that you're uniquely, I think, positioned to, to really talk about. And it's what have you learned about working with both private industry and with government directly? Because, you know, I think you've, you've had such direct links with those both of those sectors that it would be really in- interesting to hear about some of the lessons you've learned uh, working with those two sectors that maybe you, uh, the things you didn't know when you first started out.
1: Would you like to speak to that some? Wow, that is a great question. And you're right, you know, for much of my career, I've been not only doing the research, but trying to make that research impactful by um, getting out there and communicating it and sharing it in ways that can actually help people learn. So one of the lessons was the value of these interactive, what we call management flight simulators. Uh, And, you know, in every domain, whether it's how does the supply chain work? How does a company's strategy affect their success? We've designed dozens and dozens of these. Many of them are freely available for educational and other use on, on a website we've got at the sloan school of management called the learning edge website so if people just Hmm. google mit sloan sloan learning edge and then when that comes up click on the simulations button and you'll see half a dozen or more free uh, simulations that touch on a variety of areas including many in sustainability so and some people say to me well that's not basic research, that's at best translational research, as if translational research was somehow uh, second class. Hmm. I totally disagree with that. You know, there are many things you can research that are intellectually challenging. And I think what I've been working on in our team at Climate Interactive, the nonprofit organization we've partnered with to create this model, um, enormously intellectually challenging and difficult. But life is far too short to work on things that don't matter. We face serious threats uh, to our prosperity, our health, our lives. What I always advise my doctoral students to do is find something to work on that you're personally excited about, that's intellectually challenging, that can, in fact, be the subject of research, but that also matters. Mm. And there's no lack of such topics. So that's a big lesson, uh, not to spend time working on things just to get a paper published or because there's a, an important intellectual puzzle. Nothing against basic research. It's obviously essential and I've done plenty of it, uh, but, Well, a, a, a CEO that I, uh, I know very well, uh, Ray Stata, now retired founder of Analog Devices, um, he used to say, well, you know, we have all these hard technological problems we have to solve to create new products and make our company successful. And then there's all these soft issues like um, building a committed workforce and maintaining trust among our employees. Huh organizational change and and all that soft stuff is often denigrated. And he said, you know what I've learned as a CEO is the soft stuff is the hard stuff. <laughs> I think great. that's really important here. Organizational change, creating an environment where people can learn for themselves, following through so that you are there to help People who can change policy, who control the resources, really learn the lessons for themselves and develop enough confidence to be able to make change happen that's a long term process
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you have to you have to get out of being in the mode of "I'm the expert, let me tell you," and then uh, you'll you'll just naturally do the right thing once you see the evidence. That's called the deficit theory. Mm-hmm. It just says people don't do the right thing because they don't know the science. So just tell them the science. That theory is very popular still today, even though it's definitively mm-hmm. multiple times over many years been debunked over and over again. Yeah. Um, and persistence is another lesson that's incredibly important here. And, and I have to say also it's obvious, but it's so easy not to live it. Humility is really, really important. You know, when you become, uh, you get a PhD, you become an academic, you're a professor, you stand up in front of a class of people, that's an environment designed to make you feel like the expert, designed to make you feel like you know the answers. And the reality is, we don't know all the answers. And even if we did, telling people what they are won't change their minds or their behavior
0: mm, yeah.
1: a, a whole lot more humility you know, the idea is to become more of a coach than um than an expert yes and that's that's a very hard thing to do consistently in an environment academia where you're constantly getting signals that people look to you for answers mm. um reminds me of the kind of one of the
0: philosophies of teaching that I've seen come out of, uh, actually MIT is one of the places where it has, has really kind of originated from as far as I'm aware. Uh, So, uh, I was an instructor of physics a a while ago and uh, we implemented a lot of these just-in-time teaching techniques. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what you said really reminded me of that because one of the kind of phrases that summarize the philosophy of if you're thinking of yourself as an, as an instructor, say, well, think about yourself as a, a guide on the side rather than a exactly. sage on the stage. Exactly. That's yeah, the
1: title of a very famous paper, Guide on the Side Instead of Sage on the Stage. Mm-hmm. I, I love that paper. It's, it's, it's a great um, soundbite statement of mm-hmm. the philosophy, and it, it's, it's something I try to live as best I can. And I often fail, but mm-hmm. uh, I keep trying.
0: But you see the way in which you're doing that using your online tool, you know, you're saying, I'm here to provide some advice in terms of here are some different options that are available to you. Uh, I'm here to talk this through with you and to give you some quantitative sensitivity analysis, quantitative intuition for how the system works. But I'm not just standing up here and telling you, you know, what you have to do, uh, that you are embodying that philosophy, and an approach and uh yeah it's right. it's, it's exciting exciting and to see
1: that one measure of the impact uh you know it's not citations to our papers it's not you know the count of how many senators or members of congress we've briefed um it's how many people who have used our model have gone on to learn it well enough to be able to run these kinds of workshops interactively themselves Hmm. and you know we only released the model last december december 2019 Uh, so it hasn't even been a year and there's already almost 200 people who have formally gone through what we call our ambassador training program uh, which is a non-trivial training program you can go to that enroads.org en-roads.org website and learn how to go through that training uh, and then uh, they're taking this tool to their communities, their companies, their board of directors, their um, their libraries and rotary clubs and college campuses. And they're creating these environments where the folks in their, those communities can learn for themselves. It's almost yeah. 200 folks so far who have signed up for that. It's growing every day. That's a measure of success that, uh, we're pretty proud of it.
0: absolutely well, um, Professor Sturman, is there anything else that you want to talk about uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. And I just want to make sure that you feel like we've talked about what you would like to talk about and that we've covered all the bits that you wanted to share.
1: How are you feeling i I think it's been a great conversation you're you're', uh, you're it's been fun to chat with you. The only thing I would stress uh, and maybe you can Fit this in in the beginning or again at the end is this isn't something i've done by myself um, we uh, my team at mit operating out of the mit sloan sustainability initiative uh, we work in close partnership with climate interactive which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan non-partisan think and do tank in fact the website for the model is hosted by climate interactive uh, they've been key in developing the model, developing the interface, uh, developing the materials for all the training and and need to be acknowledged here it's it's never this kind of work is not a solo sport it's mm-hmm. definitely a team effort and shouldn't be attributed just to me or or even just to uh, our our team at MIT good yeah
0: that's a good a good note to end on. So, I might turn my video back on so so I can uh, wave by. <laughs>
1: there okay. we go. So see if I can do that as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hold on one second. Okay. Good. Okay. Well, oh, thank you. Much appreciated. Thank you. All right. Yeah. Thank you very much. Have a great evening. Thank you. Yep. Bye bye.
0: There you have it. Thanks for joining us. That's my conversation with Professor John Sturman at MIT. I hope that you enjoyed that. You can find that. Simulator, the climate solutions simulator at climateinteractive.org and look for the Inroads Climate Simulator. EN-ROADS. I'm at Dan Jones Ocean and you can follow the podcast at Climate SciPod. I'll be posting the video, a video of John's walkthrough of the Inroads Climate Simulator that we just went through on the podcast. I'll put it on, on YouTube and I'll post a link to that on Twitter. My uh, YouTube is pretty empty, kind of a ghost town, but that's fine. I thought a few of you might want to see the video, so that's where I will be hosting it. I'll be putting it there. Big thanks again to Professor Sturman for taking some time out to talk with me and for walking me through the climate simulator. Very much appreciated. And now we're here at the end where I usually say I'll share something, at least mildly personal, at the end of each episode like a thanks for reaching the end or something so let's just do another check-in i'll tell you how i'm doing so i am uh, my stomach feels all right it's not too bad it was hurting a little bit last check-in it feels okay um there is somebody mowing grass i don't know if you can hear that but this is the time that i have scheduled to do this uh, outro so i went ahead and recorded it yeah but i'm doing all right i hope you're well too take care bye bye